Prayer is both a common and very mysterious thing. The more I think about prayer, the more my head starts to spin. How does it work? Is it doing anything? Am I actually praying or am I just sending kind of wishes and complaints out into the atmosphere? Sometimes I confess I'll pray for a parking spot and there it is. Other times I will pray to fall asleep and I'm still agonizing at 3 a.m. Other times maybe I'll pray for someone to experience relief from answers it, but not until 20 years have gone by. So was that God working or was that just coincidence? Other times, I will even realize that the things that are most on my heart, most weighing me down about myself or the world, I don't even pray about, because it sort of feels like, why bother? I am not always great at remembering to ask. Kids are really great at asking all the time for everything, all the time. Grown-ups sometimes struggle. Maybe you struggle to ask sometimes. Maybe you've absorbed the shame message, I shouldn't have needs, I shouldn't ask. Or the pride message, I don't want to owe anybody anything. Or maybe you're comfortable, I have everything I need, I don't need to ask for anything. Or maybe you feel that hopelessness I just alluded to, what good will it do to ask? There are all sorts of reasons sometimes why we don't ask. When it comes to prayer, we might hesitate sometimes, because we know that we're not supposed to come to the Lord with a big laundry list, right? You're just supposed to spend time with the Lord and listen, just be with him. Not a magic gumball machine God, as Debbie Thomas These things are true. And yet, when Jesus' disciples come to him and say, teach us to pray, Jesus teaches them to ask. Ask. Ask and keep on asking. Seek, knock, expect, show up, ask. Jesus wants to teach us, too, to ask. So I want us to learn from Jesus this morning through three questions. Ask, from whom? Ask, for what? Ask, and then what? The disciples start with an ask, which I love. Teach us to pray. That is a great place to start. This isn't a question coming out of the blue or in the abstract from them, not just, oh, I'm wondering about this, I'll write it down. One that comes from watching Jesus praying. Now, these were pious Jewish men. They had learned to pray in the synagogue from the time that they were young. So what was it that the disciples felt so compelled by to watch Jesus pray that they would ask him to teach them to do the same? I suspect they were drawn in by Jesus' answer to our first question. Ask, from whom? This is the most important question of all. Because the answer to our asks is entirely dependent on the person we are asking from. Jesus' answer comes in the first word of this shorter version of what we call the Lord's Prayer. Father, Abba. With that one word, we're placed in the fundamental place of prayer before God, a place where we are beloved and a place where we are dependent, cherished children, and not grown-up ones that are living on their own, little ones. Think 
kids today. Think about how dependent your kids were this morning. Think about how dependent little kids are and you providing everything for them. My kids could not eat if I didn't make a meal and set it in front of them. They could maybe get dressed. They couldn't get clothes. They wouldn't get themselves clean. All these things we need to provide for little kids. They are dependent on us. And that is us too before the Lord. Very first word, Father. Prayer. It reminds us of this bedrock, belovedness and dependence. And this first word, Father, is where many of us actually get stuck in prayer. At the very first word. Because our broken earthly relationships with our mothers or fathers, or even just our very human relationships with our parents, drastically affect our ability to experience the love of our Father the way Jesus did. We cannot enter into prayer without trust. For some of us here, maybe many of us here, the first step of learning to pray the way Jesus did is simply experiencing some healing so that the love of the Father can flow into our heart like a clogged artery that needs to be cleared out so that we can experience the vitality of our body again. So if you try to pray and you just get stuck on this first word, if we find ourselves holding back from asking boldly of the Father, we might want to wonder to ourselves, what do I really believe about who God is? Not just what do I know is the right answer. I think everybody here knows the right answers about who God is. Are there lived lies in my heart that get in the way? Do I actually think that sometimes if I ask God for a hard-boiled egg, I'll get a scorpion in my hand instead? I might. Does God's love feel abstract or fickle? Do we believe we'll hold out our hands to the Lord and get nothing in return? What is going on in our hearts that gets in the way of prayer, even in that first word, Father? Do I know I'm dependent on the Lord? And do I trust that I am beloved? We can ask in prayer, in full confidence and trust, because our Father is generous and he loves us dearly. We ask because of who the Father is. The second ask, for what? Jesus says, before you pray, pray like this. Jesus is teaching us what to pray, what to ask for. It's amazing to me how this simple prayer can hold so much for us. I don't know if you remember, we did a whole Core at Nine series, the Lord's Prayer, back. A week on each phrase. We're not going to do that. Don't worry. But we this is a prayer that teaches us about God's priorities, that forms our hearts to yearn for what God yearns for. This prayer that Jesus gives us to pray is the very thing that shapes our asking, so that prayer isn't a laundry list just of all the little petty things I'm thinking about that, or an Amazon wish list prayer. This is the prayer that shapes us to ask for what Jesus wants us to ask for. I'm going to use a music illustration today. This is called a chord chart. Uh, it is very, very different. Do you see any music notes on this? Uh-uh. Just some letters. Those are the chords. If you sit down at the piano and just play it, it's something like that. So classically trained musician that I am, when I arrived at Redeemer, however many years ago, I had very little experience playing music from something like this. Anybody who's classically trained, you set this in front of them, if they don't have experience, they'll be like, what are you doing to me? Where are the notes? So when I first start playing, when you first 
playing from a chord chart like this, it kind of sounds a little basic, a little fumbling. The chords are there, but not much else. But with some time and practice, sing in collaboration with other good musicians, you can start to learn how to fill in the gaps. You start to be able to make music within these chords. And you can sing the same song with others as they do the same. And somehow it's fresh every time, even though it's the same song. I think that's a bit like prayer is for us. It gives us the framework, the chords for the Lord's song, with a lot of room to play and to add our own things in there as well. Add some guitar, add some djembe, add some harmony. It teaches us how to ask in ways that line up with God's own heart. It teaches us the Father's song. This is a song with two stanzas. And the first stanza of the Father's song would not have surprised the disciples so much, because it sounds an awful lot like a prayer they would have known called the Kaddish, which goes like this. Magnified and sanctified be his great name in the world he's created. May he establish his kingdom during your life the life of all the house of Israel, and say ye, Amen. Lord, sanctified be your name. Your kingdom come. The disciples would have heard this and said, yes, amen, got it. Even as they note that Jesus directed these prayers to the Father, not just about the Father. So what are these Father-focused phrases teaching us to ask? Hallowed be your name. That's a tricky, tricky one for us sometimes, I think. We don't talk about many other things being hallowed. So what does it mean? As you might remember, in Bible times, a person's name really meant a person's whole character. Everything that was known or revealed about them, kind of the essence of our testament. It's just getting distracting. Should I move to the podium, Mike? Yeah. All right. Talking about the Lord's name. I want to be heard. Okay. So in the Old Testament, there's a lot of concern for the name of the Lord, his holiness, his character, to be fully known in the world to all nations. Think for a second about our world right now and what people believe about God. Think about what people think about God as a result of the things they see in the world, the disasters, the war, the violence, the suffering. Think about what people might think about God because of the actions of the church in the world, the good and the bad. When we pray that God's name would be hallowed, we pray that in the end, everyone everywhere would know the truth about who God is beyond all that stuff, that God is love, his justice, his holiness, his rightness, his goodness. And we pray that right here, right now, the way God's people live in the world would reflect who God really is. That the actions and the behaviors of God's people would not bring disrepute to his name in our world. Truly, Lord, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Again, you know, we pray that the things here would reflect the way God wants them to be. As Stanley Hauerwas puts it, Jesus teaches us to pray for an end to the kingdoms of this world dominated by sin and the power of death. 
We pray for holistic redemption. So we ask rightly when we ask that violence and injustice and every form of evil in the world would cease. We pray knowing that Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities and triumphed over them in the cross. We keep on asking and seeking and knocking about these big things in the world because the prayer of Jesus teaches us that these concerns are at the very heart of the Father. The Father heard the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah and the grievousness of their sin, which scripture teaches is not really about what we now call sexual orientation, but about violence, sexual abuse, refusal to show hospitality toward the stranger, and exploiting the poor. The Lord hears those who cry out in the midst of and against all these things even now, and he will not tarry forever. Lord, bring your kingdom and bring it now. That is the first half of the Father's song. The second stanza would have surprised the disciples because it turns to asking on behalf of neighbors. The Kaddish didn't include prayers for others. This is a new song, a song shaped by the twofold love of God and love of neighbor. These next three asks are again completely dependent on the Father. And they're also not just about me, not just about prayers for my provision and my mercy and protection for me, they're prayers for one another, plural prayers. We ask for provision, both physical and spiritual. Give us this day bread enough for today, and not just me. May all my neighbors likewise have enough for today. We ask for mercy. Forgive us our sins and our neighbors too, for we also forgive those indebted to us, both literally and spiritually. Now I want to pause here. A minute ago, we were praying for the kingdom to come, for God to cast down the wicked and bring an end to injustice, and now we're praying for forgiveness. That's tied to us also forgiving others the wrongs that they've done. So how in the world do these two things go together? I found an amazing essay this week by Christina Edmondson, who's one of the hosts of the Truth Table podcast on the topic of forgiveness. I recommend the entire thing to you. I want to share an excerpt. She wrestles with this very question. Is the God of justice telling us to just forgive? Is the God who hates sin telling us to just let it go? All the pain, the suffering, the destruction. Is the God who fiercely loves and protects his children saying, just move on? She continues, here's the truth. Forgiveness, healing, and justice are not in competition. They're interrelated. They fuel and form and prop one another up, almost like a three-legged stool. Our forgiveness looks like trusting God to collect the payment so we can be free to heal and enjoy and do justice unpolluted by bitterness. In forgiveness, we're freed to not be defined by our suffering or our wrongdoer's emotional fingerprints on us. Lawyer and civil rights activist Brian Stevenson often reminds us that we're more than the worst thing that we've ever done. I'd add that we are so much more than the worst thing ever done to us. We will need some forgiveness in our community in coming months. We will. We do. Forgiveness is the thing that keeps our hearts soft toward one another so that when we are wronged, we don't do wrong in return. Now, if that feels even more impossible than justice, remember, we ask. 
This is, this is the Father's heart for us. We ask, we seek, we knock. We ask and we keep asking so that in this too, we learn to yearn for the things on God's own heart that he delights to give to us. And third, we ask for protection. Physical and spiritual fortitude, because the Lord knows we are more easily tempted when our bodies are weak. Lead us not into temptation. My neighbors too. Now many have wrestled with this verse. Can God cause us to be tempted? I think it's best to understand this as a prayer to be able to resist when we are tempted. To not be tempted beyond what we can bear. This is the part of the prayer that, for me, often leads me into confession. Because in the words of Rich Mullins, we are not as strong as we think we are. It's a place where a good therapist or spiritual director or even just an honest and kind friend who knows us can help us. Because each of us has the responsibility before the Lord to be growing in maturity, in character, to know the ways in which we're tempted, our weaknesses, our baggage, to know that if I really struggle with money, maybe I shouldn't be an accountant. To know ourselves so we can better withstand temptation, run from it when it comes. And so too, we pray for our neighbors and for our community. Lord, protect us. Do not let us go astray. Protect us so that your name might be hallowed here. None of these things which we ask for, provision, mercy, protection, spiritually and physically, none of them are in our power or under our control. Seems like it sometimes. Other times we know it's not, and that's really a gift. And so we ask. And we ask not timidly or with apologies, not sort of once and then forget about it, but with some audacity, shameless audacity. This little parable is so funny to me because I can imagine exactly what it would be like to be that neighbor who gets woken up and their kids are woken up and I will do anything just to get my kids back to bed. True confessions. So if even me and my exasperation would do that, how much more will the Lord answer us in his goodness and generosity in our hour of need, in our desire to feed our neighbor, in our commitment to hospitality in the world? Unlike this householder, the father's never asleep or busy. We don't have to pester him to get him to act. Our asking is for us. Which brings us to our last question. Ask, and then what? Because this is where the rubber meets the road. Asking is one thing, receiving an answer is another. I am confident everyone in this room has had the experience where we ask for something we really think is in the heart of the Lord, and then nothing, or so it seems. Well, Jesus gives an answer. It might not satisfy us at first. He says, if even mediocre parents give their kids good gifts, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Holy Spirit again. Really? That's it? That's all you got? That's nice and all, Jesus, but I'd rather have an actual solution to my actual problem. I'd rather actually have healing. I'd rather actually fix political problem X or world crisis Y or relational conflict Z. I just want to fix it. And the prayer you just taught us teaches us that the Father cares about all of these things. So what is the deal? When we focus on the problems, it can start to seem like God isn't doing much. 
But when we focus on the promise, we'll start to hear good news. Debbie Thomas says this, when it comes to no-holds-barred, absolutely self-giving generosity, God's answer to all of our prayers will always be yes. I want God to sweep in and fix everything much more than I want God's spirit to fill and accompany me so I can do my part to heal the world. Resting in God's yes requires vulnerability, patience, courage, discipline, and trust, traits I can only cultivate in prayer. As we pray, God promises that he himself will actually show up in us and begin to make us the people who hallow his name, who participate in his kingdom, who bring provision, who forgive, who do not go astray. God's spirit shows up in us to be our daily bread, in us to bring about the fruit of the spirit, in us to show us the steps, not all of them at once, but maybe just the next one, the steps that make for peace and health in our world, and in us to increase our patience, our perseverance as we struggle to comfort us, to be with us. The Spirit shows up in us for repentance and soften hearts and a sound mind. I realize I often think, okay, God, just like fix the stuff out here. He does that through people. He does that through us. The Spirit will show up in us as we pray. So let's try to focus a little less on the problems and a little more on the promise. We can ask for and have complete confidence that as we pray, we will receive God's own spirit, presence, power, peace, even more than we can ask or imagine. So ask. Expect. Sing the song of the Father with those around you. Pray the prayer and pray it again and ask Jesus, teach us to pray. As we ask, how much more will he give to us of his spirit in this place? May it be, O oh Lord. Amen.